I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Police have now confirmed at least four attacks in the city of Paris. Tonight, one at the Stade de France, where there was a major soccer game between France and Germany. The French president, Francois Hollande, in attendance. The AP reporting there were suicide bombers outside the stadium. You could hear it right there as the game was going on. Two more attacks in central Paris in the 10th and the 11th arrondissements at restaurants in that area. Gunmen with Kalashnikovs reported and killing several on the scene and the most horrifying attack of all at the Bataclan Concert Hall, where an American heavy metal band was playing tonight, hundreds inside. Several hundred were held hostage for a period of time, and now the AP is reporting that at least 100 have been found dead inside that concert hall. Two attackers, according to French police, also have been killed. Welcome to Series 8, Episode 1 of I Could Murder a Podcast. We are back once again. We are very excited with this series and we're starting with, as Ben would say, a big, big case. A big, big case indeed. It's very good to be back. Eight's my favourite number and I think this is going to be my favourite series. <laughs> I mean, last series it was intimidating. The one before that, I think you said it was the most best. daunting. The best. The best, yeah. Oh, that's Probably a done best. a daunting one before as well. Though. So we've gone from biggest to uh, most intimidating and now my favourite. Your favourite? Yeah. So all down here from here for you. Yeah. I'm looking forward to Series 9, though. Could be good. You like Shearer. Yeah, I like Shearer. Probably not going to come up in true crime, but how you doing, producer Dan? <laughs> Hello, boys. Welcome back to Boston Sound. The room has missed you. Yeah, it looks like it has. I haven't. Oh. But <laughs> all the plants are dead. F*** you. My grass is looking great. Have you seen outside the front? Out the front, yeah, yeah. Blinding, isn't it? What about the back? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we're very excited. It's good to be back. And we're also, this series, we're coming back with 18 episodes. We're usually 12, but this series, we're coming back with 18. Wow! 50% more! It's like a generous uh, a generous giveaway, in a way. Hopefully it's not like a carvery where you've got you've got too much on your plate. Yeah. I didn't need that much. My eyes are bigger than my... My ears are bigger than my brain. Yeah. Uh, for, the, for the content. But hopefully that's good news for you guys. We're very excited to bring you 50% more content in this series. Do we work out it takes us through to October? Or November sort of time. That's, Take us through to winter. Oh, so that's intimidating. <laughs> I want to go back to twelve. But yeah, it's been uh, it's been a, a nice to have a little break. We're back now on the main channel flow. We've had we've been busy though. It's not been you know a big oh, old yeah. break. It's been it's been a busy old break. Yeah, it's um, felt like no break at all. Exactly so. Exactly so. We are currently now up to one hundred and seventeen episodes on icmap.co.uk and. We've launched a side podcast. Yes, a little side venture. Uh, we, do, we do one a month of, of the show. It's called AI Carumba. AI, AI. Carumba. Carumba. 
space we use AI to put us in situations and it basically writes a little story for us and we we go for it me Ben and Dan and see if that would really happen um, and we you know we tweak the stories a little bit along the way and yeah it's, it's a lot of fun it's a lot more uh, it's a lot more laid back than the, than the true crime the murder um, rape and death uh, so it's nice to do something a little bit lighter palate cleanser uh, a palate cleanser yes like we said a little bit of an ear sorbet uh, what's cold out there um, <laughs> but yes uh, we do one, one of those a month um, over on our website icmap.co.uk so in order to access all these uh, exclusive additional episodes as well as the side podcast AI Carumba the first episode we did stranded on a desert island um, head over to icmap.co.uk and uh, and it's just a dollar a week and if you're listening you know as we've returned if you're live and listening in June or July of uh, 2023 then we will be doing a 50% discount on the site meaning that it's just $2 a month Month. We do uh, behind-the-scenes bloopers, uh, weekly minisodes, AI Carumba once a month, and we also, for the Prestige members, do a monthly live stream. We do indeed, and we go on there, we have a little chat, we have a little hangout, sometimes we do interactive games, and as we are audio only now, if you join the website and become a cult member, you'll get access to the, the new episodes three days early, and we'll cut out all the ad reads, and also this... Waffle. Waffle. Yeah. We'll lose the waffle and straight to the fill-in. Yeah, and you get your ear sorbet once a month as well. There so it's a go. delicious little meal. But uh, enough of that. We are back with episode one, The Paris Attacks. Um, now, this has been a case that's been kind of on our radar. Uh, it, it was actually uh, a potential series finale a few mm. series ago, but this is now our opener, um, also known as The Attack on the Bataclan, The 2015 Paris Attacks, and The November 13 Terror. And it's it's a massive case. There's so much to it. It's a bit more of a kind of politically and sociologically charged case compared to what we we normally cover um a little bit of religion in there as well so we're gonna quite a lot of religion quite quite a lot actually yeah i was Mm. trying to sort of not not kind of uh, eggshell myself over i'm treading on eggshells don't eggshell over no but um, no definitely not but uh it's gonna be uh it's gonna be a big episode a long episode it's obviously uh, a huge case which will include numerous particularly graphic descriptions of acts of terror and people losing their lives as a result we have been asked uh, traditionally uh quite a lot to to cover cases that involve terrorism a lot of people wanted to see us cover 9-11 manchester arena bombing the bali bombings and um, traditionally we focus more so on on as i said less politically or religiously charged cases but still like andrus brevik and things like that still yeah, fall true. under the category of terrorism um so yeah we we're, we've we haven't covered any in this it seems like a different kind of a terror attack um obviously with multiple attacks in one night um and being very religious uh, religiously charged as well so yeah it's a lot to cover yeah um, and it, yeah it's, it's quite an event and i'll get this in probably more so speaking for myself at no point in this episode will we claim to be experts on politics or religion uh, but we will do our best to go through a clear timeline of events of the attacks to include detailed backgrounds and aftermath also i feel i should probably do this more so for myself as well we apologize in advance for any uh, mispronunciation of uh, french or arabic words and we struggle enough with english well i do <laughs> as you've just heard hey uh, yeah free yourself thank you i feel sorry i meant through yourself sorry oh you c- <laughs> <laughs> but yeah we're gonna we're gonna do a little bit of a throwback here ben um in regards to how we used to open episodes you're gonna do a little bit of a set in the scene i will indeed and it's yeah it's a, a tragic scene to set Ooh. but we're gonna jump into it 
On the evening of November 13, 2015, the world was shaken by a series of intricately coordinated terrorist attacks that occurred across central and eastern districts of Paris. In what were the deadliest attacks committed on French soil since World War II, teams of gunmen and suicide bombers simultaneously struck a major stadium, a concert hall, a laundromat, as well as a series of cafes, bars and restaurants across the city. The combination of mass shootings and suicide bombings tragically claimed the lives of 130 people and critically injured hundreds more over a period of just a couple barbaric hours. Seven of the attackers, who were immediately claimed by ISIS, took their own lives or were killed during the attacks, which left a profound impact on Paris and the wider world. In the days following November 13th, a global outpour of love and support for France filled mainstream and social media. Whilst investigators and national intelligence security teams searched for answers and intensified their focus on counter-terrorism measures. So typically when we cover a case, we'll start with the early life and childhood of an individual or a small group of people that we're covering. But as these attacks were coordinated by 20 terrorists who have since been charged, seven more who either took their own lives or were killed at the scene as part of their involvement in the attacks, and dozen more planners who are in different countries across the world that makes this slightly trickier to do so what we're going to do instead is cover the planning background and build up to the attacks we're going to discuss the political and sociological situation in paris as well as the wider world at the time the formation and coordination of the different groups of attackers as well as highlighting some of the detail about the alleged ringleaders so instead of going through each individual we're going to summarize the group by the relevance to the attack as well as to give a little bit of context to the reasons that paris and france itself was selected as a location to attack at the time and after this we'll move into a more detailed timeline of events of the attacks before going into the aftermath. In the years building up to the November 13th attacks, many parts of Eastern Europe, and France in particular, had been battling with various political and sociological challenges, including debates around immigration, national identity, integration and security. Many French nationals had concerns that crime rates were rising due to extremism and radicalisation, both domestically and internationally as well as large increases in the number of immigrants arriving in France from parts of North Africa and the Middle East. In some parts of France, there was cultural tension and a sense of insecurity amongst those who felt that radicalised individuals were now living amongst them and in their presence. This inevitably resulted in a lot of racial and religious conflict, and also a sense of marginalisation amongst many integrated communities across the country, particularly those with immigrant backgrounds. Violent crimes and hate crimes were both on the rise, along with the number of immigrants arriving to the country, with many French nationals believing the two things correlated. These factors, tensions and concerns continue to grow, which made an already complex social situation in Paris far more complicated, providing a very fertile environment for extremist ideas to spread and for terrorists to recruit and radicalise, as well as prospective acts of terror to find intelligence and support. So basically, this was a breeding ground for opportunities to strike a this cauldron. country. Yes, yes, absolutely. Bubbling. And uh, I didn't know going into this case all the other things that happened at the beginning of this year. Mm. And that's kind of what we're going to go through now. But there was so much happening in France. And for me, my only recollection was the attacks in November and then the kind of very social media based reaction to that. Lots of people changing their profile picture on Facebook to have the French flag. And I remember the one we're about to talk to the Charlie Hebdo shoot. And I remember yeah. that very clearly. But yeah, um, there's a lot, a lot of other elements to this, which building up to it, which 
perhaps yeah maybe it was more um, publicized over in France at the time but maybe it didn't reach our shores in that sense um, but yeah it's, it's an awful lot that contributes to what happens this day so these concerns were heightened drastically by the Charlie Hebdo shooting which occurred at the beginning of 2015 the shootings which took place on January 7th were a series of coordinated attacks conducted by two radicalized French Muslim brothers 32 year old Saeed Kouachi and 30 year old Kerif Kouachi which claimed the lives of 12 people severely injuring 11 others amongst the lives lost were five very highly regarded cartoonists, three columnists, two editors, a building maintenance worker and a writer. The brothers targeted the offices of Charlie Hebdo, a satirical magazine which was globally known for its controversial cartoons, as a result of their publication of multiple cartoons depicting the Islamic prophet Muhammad. The brothers stormed the offices with rifles and submachine guns after confronting one of the magazine's artists at the security door. Once they had sprayed the office with bullets, they began chanting, We have avenged Prophet Muhammad, we have killed Charlie Hebdo before fleeing to the streets in an attempt to evade arriving police. Many eyewitnesses of the attacks described how calm and composed the two brothers were, militant in their movements. It was as if they were trained professionals. One survivor of the attack said the following, While one kept watch and checked that the traffic was good for them, the other one delivered the final coup de grace, shooting the security guard they held hostage. They ran back to the car. The moment they got in, the car drove off almost casually. They knew exactly down to the centimetre and even to the second what they had to do. I saw them leaving and shooting. They were wearing masks. These guys were serious. At first, I thought it was special forces chasing drug traffickers. In leaving the scene, the Koachi brothers allegedly shot and murdered a police officer, 40-year-old Ahmed Merabat, which was caught on film, later becoming a viral video. The brothers entered the vehicle before trying to escape the city whilst they're driving at high speed. They began shooting and pursuing police vehicles, running over multiple pedestrians whilst doing so. And I think that's the thing that's going to run through the rest of this year all of these terrorists all of these shooters are so calm and methodical in their approach and that's the bit that i'm i mean we talked about all the things that happened this year and we're going to get on to the actual november attacks but yeah all of these individuals seem to have either a military background or a lot of training very calm very composed in their approach and yeah, it's horrific what, what goes on to What do you think? One of the main things is they, they don't fear death. In their mind, they're going to paradise. Exactly, and... yeah. So whereas other people who are maybe a bit more, you know, careful with their movements and these guys just disregard it and just are able to just to kind of take... They're like, if I get killed, I get killed. That's absolutely fine. I think that's the kind of big shift in, the, in their thinking is they're not worried if they die or not. So they're able just to kind of do this ter- terrible acts and not, and have no concerns about themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're they're ready for the afterlife and the this approach in particular how how I mean because the crime scene photos of the Charlie Hebdo shootings are absolutely graphic and horrific, much like the rest of this case. And um yeah, how they managed to remain composed amongst this is just beyond me. So after the shooters had left the scene, concerned workers from offices adjacent to the Hebdo offices went to check on their colleagues. They were met by the most gruesome scenes of carnage imaginable. Wandril Lanos, a TV reporter who worked across the road, was one of the first people to enter the Charlie Hebdo office after the attack. He described what he found. As we progressed into the office, we saw that the number of casualties was very high. There was a lot of dead people on the floor, and there was blood everywhere. Rivers of blood and many, many other people seriously injured. 
a manhunt for the Kouachi brothers was launched, which lasted two days covering multiple regions of France, and the suspects were eventually killed after taking hostages and engaging in a nine-hour lengthy standoff with police. So yeah, we could go into a lot more detail about this, but we need to keep it quite concise. The incident sparked worldwide outrage and condemnation, leading to solidarity demonstrations, protests and vigils all over the world under the slogan, Je suis Charlie. French President Francois Hollande addressed the media at the scene, calling it undoubtedly a terrorist attack, a terrorist attack of the most extreme barbarity, whilst making the nation aware that several other terrorist attacks on France had been thwarted that very week. Because that's the thing, you never hear about the ones that got stopped, because no. why would they leak that information? Yeah, you don't want to make the public be constantly paranoid that's going to happen. Exactly, exactly. Uh, influential Muslim leaders from all over the world were invited to France in hopes that peace could be pushed and tensions could be eased. But the country was angry, the country was hurting, and the country's emotions were heightened. Uh, so as, as I mentioned, that is a very, very concise version of events of the Charlie Hebdo attacks. Very, very concise. Very. If you're asking me. Yeah. Do you want to ask me? What Did you think that was concise? Or? I don't know, went on a bit. Uh, <laughs> that's not disrespectful, is it? No, no. Only to me. Okay, that's right. Yeah, this is fine. Uh, but that's a case we may well cover at a later date. Uh, the incident itself renewed discussions about freedom of speech, rights to expression, uh, religious tolerance, and the threat of extremism. Freedom of cartooning. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, there was because South Park had a big thing as well. I don't know mm. if it was a similar time frame, and I know you're not a massive fan, but they. Uh, I'm nonplussed. I'm nonplussed. Come see, come see. But they had a, a kind of back and forth with their own network because they were going to show a depiction of Muhammad and the the network convinced them not to or the network censored it and they mm. were going to go ahead with it and they received a lot of similar threats. I can't remember if this happened before or after Charlie Hebdo, but yeah, this that is a there's a huge amount of that case which is absolutely fascinating. Um, but the kind of impact of that is that immediately after the Hebdo attacks and there were other attacks that occurred at a similar time frame which we'll talk about, France raised its, I'm going to say it in British here, but it's probably sounding a lot nicer in French. I'll try, I'll try it in French as well. Got GCSEB, GCSEB. Did you? Yeah, but I don't remember much of it. Um, yeah. Immediately after the attacks, France raised its Vigipirate Terror Alert. Vigipirate Terror Alert. Vigipirate. Vigipirate. Thank you. Vigipirate. Vigipirate. That's how I'd say it, but. <laughs> veggie pirate and as a result of the veggie pirate uh veggie pirate. Like a pirate that just only eats vegetables <laughs> does yeah it does a bit yeah Arr, give me a cabbage. cabbage carrots carrot close carrots and cabbage different field carrots and cabbage and a cracker for polly So anyway, so as a result of raising this alert, uh, they began to deploy soldiers and counter-terrorism agents across the country. And as the two brothers were later revealed to have been born and later radicalised in France to immigrant parents, this incident fueled already growing tensions relating to integration, immigration and radicalization. All the Asians mm. had a problem with. Seven nation. Um, Over the next 48 hours, the chaos would not stop. Other attacks would be launched across the country and even more lives would be lost. On the same morning that the Charlie Hebdo attackers were later killed, 32-year-old Amadi Kouabali, who, like the Kouachi brothers, was also born and radicalised in France, entered a hypercacia kosher supermarket located in Port de Vison in Paris. Just like the Hebdo attackers, he was armed with an assault rifle and submachine gun, as well as two pistols. Once inside the supermarket, Kouabali began firing bullets and demanding that the customers remain in the premises. Holding a total of 19 people hostage, including four Jewish people, he began making threats to arriving police and passers-by that he would begin to kill the hostages if the Kouachi brothers were harmed. He was allegedly in regular communication with the brothers during the siege. A surviving witness said, 
People were buying things when a man came in with a rifle and started shooting in all directions. I ran out. The shooting continued for several seconds before it became silent. Koulibaly said whilst demanding the safety of the Kouachi brothers that his actions were specifically targeting Jewish people in order to defend Muslims, notably Palestinians. He also said that his actions were revenge for the Western coalition actions in Iraq, Afghanistan and Mali. Referencing Operation Shamal, which was a French military operation in Iraq and Syria that was launched in September of the previous year to support the Iraqi army in their fight against the expansion of ISIS. Malik Zadi, a 25-year-old Muslim of Algerian heritage who managed to flee the supermarket just as the shooting started, agreed that the attack was aimed at Jews, but noted that Muslims were likely to have been held hostage as well. He said the following. It's a kosher store, but not only Jews go there, I go there. In this neighbourhood, there are Muslims, Jews, Christians. It's like Paris. It's a melting pot. Cohabitation. And throughout 2015, cohabitation in France had been challenged like never before, with two attacks in 48 hours that tore at the very foundations of French society. Whilst police did not enter the supermarket for minutes that must have felt like hours, the hostages inside began to make a plan to overpower the shooter. 21-year-old Yoav Hatab and 22-year-old Johan Cohen, who have since been hailed as heroes by their fellow hostages, noticed that Koulibaly had placed one of his weapons on a countertop whilst changing ammunition. When Koulibaly began threatening a mother and a small child, Johan Cohen and Yoav Hatab made their way to the weapon, with Cohen picking it up and quickly aiming it at the shooter, which that, that takes guts. Unfortunately, the weapon jammed on him at the very moment that he had aimed it at Koulibaly, and he was alerted shooting Cohen in the head and firing two bullets into Hatab. During this commotion, many hostages escaped and many others began to hide in different parts of the supermarket. I think a large number also hid in a walk-in fridge as well and they were in there for a long time. The two men saved many lives in that moment, allowing police to throw stun grenades into the facility and shoot Koulibaly. So Koulibaly, uh, Koulibaly was killed by the police. But I just thought stun grenades, they're pretty interesting. Oh, yeah. Play the jingle, Dan. <laughs> Ben Carter's Interesting Facts. Interesting Facts. Welcome back. Welcome back. We've missed you. Uh, it's nice to have been renewed, although the, the team over at Ben Carter's Interesting Facts or BCI, BC's IFs, um, we weren't quite re- prepared for 18 episodes. Um, but stun grenades, what are, they, what are they all about? How do they know that they work? I found that quite interesting. How do they know that they work? How do they sort of... How did they come about and how did they know that they actually stun people? Uh, they probably came about because people wanted to have a, a, a weapon that they could throw into a situation and not blow everyone up and in order to kind of buy themselves time yeah. to go in and enter that. It's good to ask. So yeah, to, it's a great to, question. To and a great question and a great answer there. Thank you so I much. All right, so both of us. Stun grenades, also known as flash grenades, flashbangs, stun bangs, disorientation devices, sound bombs, but they're just a few names. Uh, they are exactly what they say on the tin. A flash and a bang, or a stun and a bang. Uh, Well, they were first invented in the 1960s by the British SAS, uh, almost in accidental fashion. Oh. Uh, I mean, you're, you're bang on the money, flashbang on the money, um, with uh, your your answer. <laughs> you like that one. Because um, no, we're doing audio only, you don't have to, if I smile at all, you don't I have to... I feel like I have to tell everyone. No, you don't. <laughs> I Just... keep looking at a camera that's not there anymore. Going, <laughs> no, he's smiling, he's smiling. <laughs> no. Oh, God. Um, but, and, yeah. and just pissed himself. Yeah, again. Um, 
But they were first invented, as I said, in the 60s, uh, and kind of almost accidentally invented as well. So these explosive devices were initially developed by the British Special Air Service as training weapons due to their less lethal effects. But they were adapted over time to transition into being used for decades as military weapons and policing. So as you said, as Tom, if you want to buy yourself some time, disorientate some people, they'd certainly work. It started off as just a bang. Some people argue just like the world. Do you mean the universe? Just like the universe. Sorry about that. We're back, baby. When testing, SAS scientists would still notice huge physical effects from the devices, so they gradually over time removed elements of the explosive content until it stunned without truly causing concussive effects. And they had problems initially with fragments still flying out of the device, uh, and they originally tested this on small structures before evolving to test on each other. Yeah, I thought animals might happen somewhere. I'd rather they didn't. I would rather they didn't as well. But I thought, I assume, yeah. sort of, you know, rats, pigeons. Pigeons. <laughs> Quick, that pigeon. That pigeon looks stunned. It looks stunned. But they, uh, <laughs> well, but they, yeah, they initially uh, started off on each other, many of whom were SAS troopers, and they just fired it off and, and sort of saw what happened. Well, you see the videos of them testing out nuclear explosives yeah. with people sitting on the boats. Jesus, yeah. That is fucking terrifying. So, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that they do that. I did look online because, first of all, my first thought was, please don't be animals, please don't be animals. And I could only find one report to suggest that they did initially test them on rats and mice who are more nocturnal than humans. Um, but the effects were more significant due to their size. Unlike regular grenades, stun grenades are constructed with a casing around them that remains intact. So instead of the exploding case that turns into shrapnel mm. this um this stays intact and it only lets through a small amount of light and sound which basically the bright flash from the grenade causes all of your uh photoreceptor cells in the eye to be blinded for five seconds oh, yeah sometimes it can last a bit longer if they get you really in the eyes yeah really receptive um, yeah. yeah i also read as well if you shut your eyes when they are thrown it doesn't affect you at all what about well, it still gets your ears and gets your ears. Yeah, yeah you get all that um, but you'll, if you are stunned, you'll see, you know, if you stare at a light like I'm staring at our neon for a bit, if I stare at that for five seconds and then I'll have like, I'll see it in your face type thing. That will happen with a stun grenade. So whatever you're looking at, you'll get what's called a after image, which will continue to impair your vision. And the bang from the flash causes temporary deafness and can also impact um, the fluid in your ear. Which I mm. thought that was, so there's not really a trick for that. I thought, can you put, you know, shut your eyes, put your fingers in the ear like the old Dick Dastardly on Wacky Races when he's about to cut a bridge down or something. Um, but no, um, there wasn't. And uh, yeah. Cut it down. But yeah, so despite their less lethal nature, stun grenades are still capable of hurting you, causing actual harm, and can injure or kill people when detonating in close proximity. They're also capable of sparking fires. And they did very similar tests on stun guns. So they test pepper spray, stun guns on, on other police Don't their recruits have to, yeah, they have to be given it yeah. as part of their training. They have to know what it feels like. Wouldn't like that. I keep seeing a video of people marching on their backs up a train track as well. I keep seeing that. What? I don't know what training that's soldiers. Marching on their backs? Yeah, like backwards on the floor going up, using their shoulders as a way to move forward along train tracks. It looks horrible. Um, slightly off tangent there. There is. Yeah. 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 But, you know... You know, I've got mice, I've got rats, I've got shrapnel, um, ear fluid, shutting your eyes. If if someone does throw a flashbang at you, just shut your eyes and hope for the best. Or run. There you go. There, there's Ben's advice for if someone throws a thumb, grenade at you. Uh, back to... Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. 
Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The case. So, like the Charlie Hebdo attacks, that is an incredibly brief overview of the Hypercacia Kosher supermarket siege, which ultimately took the lives of four innocent individuals, seriously injuring nine more, before the gunman was killed by police. This meant that in 48 hours, three attackers had killed 17 people, while severely wounding 22 additional people, before being killed in standoffs with the police. Al-Qaeda immediately took responsibility for both of the coordinated attacks, though Kuwabali had pledged his allegiance to ISIS during his attack. They always do claim... Yeah, very quick. Very, very quick. Very quick, yeah. So to say that Paris, France and the rest of Europe as a whole felt under attack and on alert from the beginning to the end of 2015 would be a huge understatement. With one resident, a young man named Sam Cohen, who was interviewed outside the supermarket just one day after the attacks, said the following. This is only the beginning for what's awaiting France. Everyone's going to grab a weapon and there will be more and more dead and more and more bloodshed every day. So yeah, so um, at the time of filming this episode, there was an incident, a, a terrorist related incident in Nottingham yesterday mm. and last night I wanted to learn a bit more about it because only at this point in time a certain amount of information has been revealed to the public mainly about the victims um, so all I did was go onto Twitter and search Nottingham suspect because I just wondered if I could get a bit more information about the case and as I said at the start of this episode we I do not proclaim to be any kind of political or um, religious expert but all I found when searching literally Nottingham suspect on Twitter were hundreds and hundreds of people with Union Jacks as their profile picture blaming everything on immigration and race and um, and, and politics and the leaders of this country at the moment. And again, don't want to get out of my depth here, so please save me if I do. I'm letting you swim, mate. Yeah. <laughs> but I, think, I find that events like this, people always use it to fuel their own narrative or their own agenda. And I could find no sympathies for the victims of the families effective, no actual information about the case all i found was again i'm um, people with union jack pictures or britain first in their bio suggesting that this is all you know our, our leaders have got blood in their hands and, and they were using it to f further their agenda hate breeds hate exactly and in france at this time this was because as well it's a very accommodating country for asylum seekers and and people looking to flee war-torn countries so the more that were arriving the more hate that they were met with which was just it, as we said at the start of the episode it became a breeding ground for crime and terror yeah and i also want to say every group of people every group has their own section of dickheads in terms yeah. of like you know every religion has a bunch of dickheads like every single one obviously non-religious people there's, Still there's, dickheads. there's yeah. no matter where you are it, it's one of those things where and, and it doesn't mean immediately the people that do those attacks that's what everyone who's part of the religion believes in exactly and that's the thing where people just just completely blanket them all and say that's the, what their religious text says they need to do yeah. people start taking the words out of context and twisting them so they work to their own narratives people can twist things to their own agenda yeah there you go so episode one we have got as deep as we ever have been um and i feel like i'm drowning um so let's move on
Yeah. Again, similar to France at this time, people were using it to suit their own agenda and spread their own hate and tar everybody with the same brush. So France continued to be on high alert as the year progressed, but this did not thwart prospective attacks. And as Sam Cohen had predicted, racial and religious tensions continued to grow, and a variety of different but equally terrifying incidents occurred across the country. So this, this, all this stuff that happens now before we get to November, I, I remember none of it. I remember Charlie Hebdo, but. Everything here I remember none of, and all of it is absolutely terrifying, but quick, 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 month after month after month, mm. something's happening. And You were drinking quite a lot at the time, weren't you? I was going through some stuff, you know. Yeah. Milkshakes, iced coffee, a lot of dairy. Yeah. Not just on water. You had a Union Jack in your Twitter bio. No, f*** off, f*** off. On the 3rd of February 2015, less than a month after the previous attacks we have mentioned, 30-year-old Musa Koulibaly, uh, no relation to the previous individual, who had previously been arrested for armed robbery and drug-related crimes, attacked three French soldiers who were guarding a Jewish community centre in Nice, which is in the southeast corner of France. The man rushed the guards with an eight-inch knife, stabbing one in the face and one in the arm before being apprehended. The soldiers' bulletproof vests were said to have prevented more fatal injuries, and although the attack was described as a lone wolf terrorist attack, some speculate that two accomplices fled the scene. In April of 2015, 24-year-old Sid Ahmed Glam, an Algerian national living in Paris, had plans to commit multiple mass shootings at two churches in South Parisian suburbs. He began his attack by shooting and killing 33-year-old Aurélie Chatelain, in a car outside the church, but then accidentally shot himself in the leg before falling to the ground. Police arrested him at the scene. Upon further investigation, his car was found filled with multiple automatic weapons. Three of the man's accomplices were later arrested, with police suggesting that they had evidence enough to suggest the man had received instructions from Syria. Two months later, in June of 2015, 35-year-old Yassine Salih, a French-born Muslim with North African parents, tricked his employer into his delivery van before knocking him unconscious, strangling him and then decapitating him. He then placed the severed head of his former employer on a fence railing and planted two jihadist flag banners on either side of it. The head had a cloth thrown over it with the following written on it. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. The headless body and a knife were found on the ground nearby. Sali then drove his delivery van at high speed into a large number of gas storage cylinders at an air products chemical factory in Saint-Quentin-Falavier near Lyon in an attempt to blow up the factory. His efforts were unsuccessful and he was later apprehended by police. So again, there is a lot more detail to this one, but he literally drove into them. There was very little reaction. I think some caught a flame, but there was no explosion. And then he was out there trying to like stab these cylinders open and throw things at these cylinders before they managed to apprehend mm. him. Uh, he was eventually apprehended uh, by police after his efforts were unsuccessful. The attack occurred on the same day as several other Islamist terrorist attacks across Tunisia, France and Kuwait, which have subsequently been named the 2015 Ramadan attacks. Sali would commit suicide whilst in prison later that year. In August of 2015, 25-year-old Moroccan-born Ayoub El-Khazani boarded a high-speed train in Amsterdam that was heading to Paris. Ayub went to the toilet in carriage 12, where three off-duty American soldiers and a British tourist were sitting. They could hear what they believed to be a weapon loading from within the carriage toilet. Ayub emerged shirtless, brandishing the assault rifle. Fortunately, the gun jammed and the passengers quickly overpowered him. Though three people were injured in the event, none were fatal. Ayub was found to have been carrying a Kalashnikov assault rifle, a knife, a pistol, 270 rounds of spare ammunition and a bottle of petrol when he boarded the train that was carrying 544 passengers. That's a lot. That was a big bag in it. He was later sentenced to life in prison and when being sentenced he told a French judge 
I'm a real jihadist, but we do not kill women and children. I'm not a slaughterer. I'm a noble fighter. I'm a soldier. I mean, he didn't slaughter anyone, mate. Um, he slaughtered someone's thumb. Cut, cut someone's thumb open yeah, a little bit. I'm a, I'm a thumb killer. Uh, <laughs> doesn't really work. No. Um, there's also been a film directed by Clint Eastwood that's made about the specific event called The 1517 to Paris. Throughout the year, the Bataclan Theatre in Paris had also been threatened by terrorists several times partly due to the fact that two Jewish brothers had owned it for more than 40 years, but also due to it regularly proclaiming support and putting on events for Jewish organisations and Israel. A group calling itself the Army of Islam had made very public threats to the theatre for the previous five years, often threatening to mail-bomb the building. The series of attacks led to a dramatic increase in France's domestic security spending, with then-President François Hollande pledging more than $850 million to fund his country's counter-terrorism efforts. There was also a huge spike in the number of reported Islamophobic incidents across France, but particularly in Paris. This increased consistently following the attacks, which was considered a worrying and increasingly straining development given that France was home to Western Europe's largest Muslim community. All the while, as French military forces continued to support the Iraqi army in their fight against the expansion of ISIS, a large cell of Islamic terrorists based in France, Iraq and Belgium were plotting the biggest attack on French soil since World War II. In the municipality of Molenbeek, which is a district of Brussels, Belgium, and is known for having one of the highest concentrations of foreign terrorist fighters in Europe, 28-year-old Abdelhamid Aboud, a Belgian national of Moroccan descent, was alleged to have put together a team of almost 30 jihadists and nine leading terrorists, aged between 20 and 31, who all had Paris locked in their sights. Made up of three coordinated teams, which we'll go on to in a bit more detail in the timeline, with two members having fought for ISIS in Syria and then returning to France as Syrian refugees. So there was, again, a lot of controversy about national security letting them back in and they were aware that they'd been fighting in Syria. The large group of men began to make their way to the city by various methods and routes and would arrive in Paris just days before the dreaded attacks took place. They came into the country with, along with people who were generally seeking asylum and they yes. kind of just disguised themselves within the pack so it was one of those where, you know, with that number of people coming to it, I guess, you know, they were, they kind of hid themselves in plain sight, came with them and yeah. That's true. But I think, I think because the, the, the public were aware of the $850 million that had been pumped into kind of counterterrorism and security. Yeah. They maybe would have thought that, again, hiding in plain sight makes sense. And it's a bit, it's a, it's a country with a lot of borders, isn't it as well? Yeah. So. And yeah. Waterstones. Yes. Yeah. It's a bookshop joke there. Yeah, harmless. Despite multiple consistent terrorist attacks all over the country and a huge amount of public unrest, Paris was selected to hold the 2015 United Nations Climate Change Conference, or the UNCCC, as I refer to it as, um, which, right, which was scheduled to be held at the beginning of December. This resulted in an increased security presence, as well as the reinstating of border checks throughout early November. But, unfortunately for Paris, the worst was still to come. And it is here where we move on to the timeline of the Paris attacks. September to November 2015. A house in Belgium, as well as two apartments, is rented throughout the months of September, October and November of 2015. The renters used false identities. During this time, the residences are used to plan and plot the terror attack. As well as housing, Salah Abdelassam rents two cars. These cars would be used to drive from Belgium to France. 
Most plotting of the attack took place within Belgium. Those involved in the attack were either driven to France or already lived within the country. Friday the 13th, November 2015. So this is the day when the attacks took place. So we'll be breaking the day up into minute by minute. The autumnal day was mild. People across Paris were beginning to get into the festive mood. Nobody could have expected the deadliest attack on France since World War II to take place on this day. 9.20pm. The first attack takes place at the Stade de France. A friendly football match between France and Germany is underway. Three men, Bilal Hadfi and Ahmed Al-Mohamed and M. Al-Mamod, are dropped outside of the stadium. One of the men is wearing a suicide belt under his clothing, unbeknownst to the public, but has refused entry into the football stadium. At first he tries to enter a crowd of people in the hopes that he will not be seen. When a security guard asks the man for his ticket, the man replies with, I need to go in, I have to get inside. He is asked to stand to the side and wait. At first he does so, making sure to watch the movements of the security guard that has denied him entry. Soon after, he disappears into a swarm of people. Witnesses have since reported seeing the man and noticing that his demeanour was odd. He was described as having a young face. After being denied entry into the stadium, the suicide bomber proceeded to detonate his belt. One passerby is killed in the attack. At first, people presume there's been a gas explosion or someone who's used a firecracker. Calls are made to emergency services. There is confusion as the calls are coming from people who had heard the attack. They had not seen it. This suicide belt, as well as the others used in the attack, contained tricetone and triperoxide. This chemical compound is often used in terror attacks. It is a highly unstable chemical compound. The suicide belts also include loose shrapnel. So yeah, a bit more about the football match. So there, it was a, although it was a friendly, it was a sellout. So there were 80,000 people in attendance. So the crowds were massive. Uh, and this individual obviously didn't have a ticket to the game, but they had plotted between the three of them that one would be by the exit, one would be within the stadium and create a kind of a delayed reaction to send people from within the stadium to outside mm. and catch them at both ends. Um, and luckily there were not a, a significantly higher number of fatalities when it when it did detonate. As well as this, in the in the there's a lot of obviously footage of this case. There's a documentary that's been made. You can, whilst the game is going on, you can hear the explosions in the background. Um, you can hear multiple explosions, but at first, I think the crowd and the footballers are not aware of the significance of the explosions either. So at 9.24, a second simultaneous attack commences. A car carrying Shakib crew, Abdelhamid Aboud and Brahim Abdelassam drives to Rue Alibert. Le Carillon, which is a bar, is filled with civilians who were using the bar to meet with friends and to watch the football match, which could be seen on the bar's TV. So at this point, obviously the match is a sellout, you're in Paris, the streets are filled with people watching the game as well, uh, and it's a Friday night, people are having a good time, lots of young people out, and things are about to drastically change in their night. People don't immediately think of anything sinister, but notice that a loud bang can be heard which causes one of the football players to stop playing. Emergency services are already near the location, but are attending a routine call. A woman has injured herself at a nearby supermarket. 9.25pm. The attackers step out of the vehicle and proceed to shoot victims at Le Carillon with AK-47s. Initially, victims theorise that firecrackers are the cause of the sound, yet these innocent victims quickly come to realise that they are being shot at. People inside the bar duck for safety under tables. They can see clouds of smoke and are surrounded by broken glass. People hide under anything that will protect them from the terrorists as they make their way through the bar shooting anything and everything. Once the attackers have finished shooting Le Carillon, they turn their attention to Le Petit Cambodge. Eyewitnesses record seeing the gunmen cross the road and start attacking the restaurant. In total, 15 are killed during this time, with a further 15 being critically injured. The attackers fled the scene in a black Seat Leon hatchback. Victims hear the car speed off, but are petrified to move. Many start to open their eyes to the horror. 
pools of blood, tables and chairs are overturned and broken glass can be seen. Those who have just faced the attack begin to help in any way possible to those who have been injured. People begin to administer CPR and apply pressure to the body parts of those who have been wounded. Although many would die from this attack, without the quick thinking and help of these survivors, the death toll would have been much higher. 9.26pm. The Red Plan comes into force on the streets of Ali Bear and Bishat. The Red Plan, now known as the Orsek Novi Plan, is designed to help and give quick medical aid when there are multiple casualties in a specific area. It designates specific medical authorities to the area and allows them to best and adequately treat the casualties. 9.30pm. The football game continues despite the attack. A second suicide bomber detonates his belt at a different entrance to the stadium. At this point, President Francois Hollande is escorted to safety. His own son is inside the stadium. After speaking with the security team at the event, Hollande decides to keep the football game going. He is advised that this is the safest situation due to the shootings that are taking place on the streets of Paris. So it's, it's very interesting that because obviously yeah. you would have thought, oh, well, that's how can you keep a game going? But you know, keeping everyone contained in the stadium, focused, distracted in a sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'd be horrible obviously for the players as well playing in that situation. I can't imagine because obviously they're hearing the bangs yeah, and probably yeah. hearing different things and reacting to how people are reacting to in the stadium. But keeping them everyone pending is, is a safe thing that they can do. Yeah, exactly. If they had all fled the stadium and kind of bottlenecked at, that, uh, at the various exit points, that was exactly what the terrorists were hoping yeah. for. So the, the numbers would have been horrific if yeah. not for that quick thinking. There are videos of the noise of the detonation online and we'll play this for you now. Just as one of the footballers kicks the ball, the second explosion takes place. It is truly horrific to hear the noise with the knowledge that this was actually a terrorist attack. 9.32pm. More attacks take place on the streets of Paris. Rui de la Fontaine Roy comes under fire with witnesses seeing multiple gunmen shoot at unsuspecting diners. A la Bonbière and La Casa Nostra restaurants are hit. As well as this, dozens of bullets are fired into a nearby laundromat. Five people would unfortunately be shot and killed in this attack. So those two restaurants are really close by. There's loads of bars and cafes with people sitting out on the streets, enjoying their evening, and they are just spraying bullets into these areas. And there's so many eyewitness accounts of it. There's a guy that was saved by his phone when some shrapnel yeah. went to him. That's mad, yeah. They, yeah. He was on the phone then. That saved, saved him, yeah. 9.36pm, the gunmen made their way to Rue de Chiron. La Belle Equip is showing the football match whilst catering for two big reservations. One party is celebrating a work contract and the other is celebrating the birthday. Suddenly, the celebrations stop when the terrorists who have just attacked other bars and restaurants nearby arrive. Do you know what this reminds me of as well? In the break, I sent a, a message, oh, a, well, a, a video into our podcast group chat, and it was basically an American advert for the preventation and kind of advisory movements when a mass shooting takes place in a restaurant or a bar. Mm. That's one of the most upsetting things I think I've ever seen. It's like four or five minutes long, wasn't it? And... It was talking about different ways to diffuse and react to a mass shooter in mm. your presence. And until you're in that situation, even with those kind of pieces of advice, it's yeah, uh, horrific. Yeah, I saw that, that back to school one. That was really yeah. horrible as well. And then because all of these different things are happening as well. So it's so well coordinated by these attackers, which is horrible to say. But there, there's explosions going off in one part of Paris. There's, there's mass shootings taking part in multiple other parts of, of Paris. It's just no one knows where to go or what. And I think the call to keep them in the stadium was such a smart, yeah, smart decision. The terrorists begin shooting. The victims inside the restaurant attempt to make themselves as small as possible. They get onto the floor and shield themselves from the bullets with tables and chairs. The gunmen do not just shoot at the restaurant. Witnesses reported of one of the gunmen also firing at vehicles that were driving past, attempting to flee the terror. 
19 people would lose their lives in this horrific attack. 9.40pm. Another incident occurs. Brahim Abdul Islam attacked Comtois Voltaire. The terrorist walked into the bar and calmly sat down. He is greeted by a waitress and before the waitress can take his order, it has been described that there was a flash of white. The terrorist detonates a suicide belt. Again, people think there has been a gas explosion. And I guess if you're not familiar with the sounds of gunfire or explosions, you'd, you'd automatically associate it with fireworks and... Well, I mean, it's staggering. Everything, every case we do with a mass shooter, every time about that, everyone said it's firecrackers. I think it's firecrackers. Because... If there's a big football match going on and yeah. people celebrating. Exactly, yeah. You've got, you got international fans coming over who might be more rowdy or whatever, but we'll get into it when it gets into the gig. But um, here in the footage, you can completely see why people think it's firecrackers. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the the lucky part of this situation, considering the significance of the, the, the fact that he detonated a suicide belt, is that the only person that died was the attacker himself. The waitress is severely injured without realising that there has been a terrorist attack. People within the cafe attempt to save the terrorist. They are under the impression that he has been hurt in the gas explosion. So that goes to show you just how what they thought was going on. As a result, a man gives the terrorist a cardiac massage. It is only when the man takes off the terrorist's t-shirt that he sees that there are wires attached to him. In an attempt to not cause panic, the man continues to give the terrorist CPR. Emergency services arrive on the scene within minutes. When the emergency services arrive, the scenes are chaotic. Firefighters are told that team leaders are in charge. This is an order that one of the team leaders, Jimmy, says that he never thought he would hear. Many of the services have to take a moment to comprehend the scene before them before they can react. They administer help to victims who have been severely injured, whilst those who have not been hit continue to help those bleeding out around them. So yeah, once again, it goes without saying the absolute bravery of the civilians who saved the lives that night and those who helped in stopping terror from being spread. Those who lived close to the scene brought blankets to cover the living from seeing the dead. Strangers stayed with each other and held hands within the last moments of people's lives. Many declined help because they thought that others needed it more. Without their help, many more would not be here to tell their story today. 9.49pm. Whilst these attacks were taking place, a sold-out concert was being played by Eagles of Death Metal at the Bataclan. The Bataclan Theatre and Concert Hall had a capacity of 1,500 people. It had one error of tiered seating which would go on to prove fatal for many of the concert goers that evening. There was around 1,200 people in the standing area and roughly 350 people in the balcony area above them. After storming their way through, three gunmen started firing at the crowd. The band are playing a song called Kiss the Devil. The song is coming to a close when short, sharp bangs can be heard throughout the concert hall. We'll play a little bit of this for you now. As I said earlier, you can, I can really see from hearing that. Sometimes when you hear people think it's firecrackers, you go, surely you could tell it's a gun. I know that sounds, you know. Mm. But when you hear that, you can, you can completely understand. It'd be a bit random for that to yeah. be happening at a concert. I know some of the concert goers actually believe maybe it was part of the stage show. Maybe they brought these things to kind of be shocking. and Because yeah. you know, they're you know, a rock band. Maybe they're doing these things to be a bit more out there. But um, sadly, that was not to be the case. It's very reminiscent of the, the Vegas shooting when they were mid-performance and had to flee the stage quickly. These guys seemed very, the Eagles of Death Metal seemed very particularly the singer very quick to react and get off the stage as, as quick as he could yeah he was he, he drops his guitar really quickly one of the uh, one of the I think the drummer thought it was just the PA um, playing up and then um, the, you know he hid behind his drum riser for a while I watched an interview on them um, on Vice talking about it and reflecting back to it and yeah you see how torn up they still were about the event and uh, 
yeah, they're quick to kind of see what was happening, and they actually didn't know whether or not they were being it was them being targeted rather yeah. than the audience. Yeah. Yeah. So witnesses describe seeing three gunmen shoot indiscriminately at the concert goers. They appeared calm as they continued to take people's lives away. These gunmen were Omar Ismail Mustafai, Sami Amior, and Fuad Mohammed Agid. Automatically, a frenzied panic started. People dropped to the floor in the hopes that pretending to be dead would stop them from being shot at. Others ran for their lives, only to be shot down by the terrorists. Some tried to flee via a side entrance to the hall, others sought safety at the roof of the building. It has been reported that a terrorist shouted Al Akbar before they commenced their attack. In addition to this, witnesses recall hearing the terrorists shout about France's stance with Syria. As we mentioned earlier, it's believed that the, the Bataclan was, um, was targeted due to the, uh, the owners being Jewish. So those who are playing dead are falsely led to believe that the terror has come to an end when the shooting stops. Unfortunately, the terrorists were just reloading their guns. Some of the concert goers decide to hide within the confines of the balcony seats. When they think it's safe to do so, they proceed to crawl on the floor to the back of the concert hall. Here, they find themselves in one of the dressing rooms. But yeah, a lot of people would um, would wait until they hear the reloading and then they'd make their run for it at that, at that point. And you know, playing dead on the floor, literally covered in blood. The, the, yeah. the pictures of the scene is absolutely horrific. Terrible. I wouldn't recommend searching it. But the gunmen were walking around checking if people were playing dead as yeah. well. And if they were moving or whatever, they just, just they would just shoot them or if they could see breathing. Well, they were kicking people on the floor that were pretending to be dead. And then obviously that would get a reaction. Yeah. And boom. But I, it's, I was watching the documentary about this and I was thinking because they're holding their breath. And this sounds maybe really stupid to say, but if you just try and hold your breath, like for as long as you can, and then but then doing it under, you know, your adrenaline's at an all time high, you're thinking if you fuck up and start being really obvious that you're going to be killed, it's 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 just terrifying. Yeah, remaining still when your body's in shock, I imagine, is impossible. Yeah. And it's the flight, it's the fight or flight uh, going through the bodies and. The fact is that it wasn't, they were basically blocking the, the main entrances, um, the main exits, and then the side entrances were very bottlenecked, and people were trying to go on through the stage, which didn't actually lead to a clear exit as well. Yeah. Jesse Hughes, the singer of Eagles of Death Metal, um, he made his way off stage to go try and find his girlfriend Tuesday, who was, who was upstairs, or well, he thought was upstairs, and he made his way up there, opened the door, and he was greeted by one of the gunmen. Jeez. But he had people behind him from the audience trying to find the way out as well, and he was like, no, turn your back, turn back, and they ran. Um, luckily, he was able to find Tuesday and, and, and make his way to safety. But um, yeah, it, there's, yeah there's, I recommend watching the Device interview with with the band. It's, it's very interesting to see. It's, it's, it's very uh, heartbreaking to see how they, obviously they're still affected. Um, so in the in the dressing rooms behind, there are forty to fifty people crammed into one room. They decide that their best chance of survival would be to break the false ceiling and climb into the toilets. So people will be yeah, they were standing on toilets in order to be able to climb through the the false ceiling in order to get to safety. And luckily, a large amount of people did manage to get through there uh, without getting caught. There are multiple accounts of those being with friends and family who got shot. The friend or family member that remained uninjured would try to protect their loved one by lying on top of them. This meant they were able to stop more bullets from entering their companion's body. Unfortunately, at least 89 people are murdered in the Bataclan, with dozens more critically injured. I mean, it's the largest number of, of people in all these particular different attacks that are concurrent, um, the largest number of people murdered. There are so many different witness testimonies. There was a British guy who went with his girlfriend and he was talking about how once um, they had all kind of pretended to be dead on the on the ground floor, the attackers then went up to the, um, the balcony and began using, because the stage lights were still all on, yeah. showing all of the audience. And I mean, the photos, as Tom said, it's, they are 
the crime scene photos are absolutely horrific, but they would then just pepper bullets down from the balcony. Yeah, they, they, one of the, um, they were heard of saying, like, oh, they're pretending to be dead and shooting down on them. Yeah. And there's a few interesting quotes from a documentary I watched about it. it was one of the people said, I don't believe in God, but if hell had a soundtrack, that would be it. Um, another person would say he wasn't scared anymore, he was just waiting to die. 89 people being murdered in, in this instant is is horrific, especially in the, the I believe it was a 20-minute time frame that this shooting went on for. And people talk about the the hive mind, which is essentially, if you imagine a beehive, uh, so I thought you'd like this producer, Dan, with your dad making all that honey. Uh, if you distract or disrupt one part of the hive, the rest of the bees will jump you, not jump you, but they'll, they'll swarm. swarm you. And so the hive mind, although it's impossible to know what you would do if you were in a situation like that, it's the fight or flight, I suppose. But so obviously there are 1,500, over 1,500 people there and, and three shooters. But it, I mean, they were all shot initially from behind. So they had no time to react. And then people were still, people further forward were still disorientated. I think there was reports that some were even crushed as the victims' yeah. bodies fell forward, which is a horrific thought. But the hive mind basically says that if one of them is hurt or one of them is shot, if you have that mentality, which most people obviously don't have, and why would you in a situation like that, but you'd immediately react and overpower the situation. But I think in this situation, you're one second, you're in a concert, yeah, I mean, enjoying uh, your favourite band. Yeah, exactly. It's, one of those, it's, it's so easy for everyone to say that. I mean, yeah. I listened to a podcast, which I thought was very disrespectful in this whole uh, whole case. And they thought yeah. a similar thing about hive minds and how, you know, why don't they just do that? Then it's like, well, yeah, don't just say that. Because obviously until you're there witnessing that, it's so easy to say. Obviously on the 9-11 attacks, there's one plane that people overtook yeah. and then they crashed the plane. But that's slightly different when you're in a, as you're in an enclosed space and there's no way out. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's slightly different because you know either way you're probably going to die. Uh, and this is like, as well, there is opportunities for people to escape this because there's the doors. Yeah. They don't know what's going on. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, you can't imagine, you can't even fathom no. the idea of it and how you, how you'd act. I'm always surprised how people are so quick to play dead. And obviously, because um, yeah. I don't know if I will come to my mind as, as early as it does to some people. And obviously it does. It's, it's a smart thing to do, I think, but, um, you just don't know how you're going to act until you're actually in that situation. And that there are, from the people that were playing dead, there are so many um, witness testimonies that they were having to kind of crawl through other people's bodies and other yeah. people's blood. And the whole floor was essentially covered. Yeah, apparently a lot of people just lost their lives because they weren't willing to leave their family members or their friends. Yeah. And, you know, they were they, they could have escaped, but they weren't willing to leave them, which just goes to show, you know, it just adds another heartbreaking layer to all of this. 9.33pm. The third and final suicide bomber at the Stade de France detonates his belt at a nearby McDonald's close to the stadium. He is wearing an exact replica of the suicide vest that had been used by his conspirators. According to CNN, this attack left over 50 people injured and left seven with serious injuries. Back at the concert hall, the attack is still ongoing. People held their loved ones' hands. And again, as Tom mentioned, people were preferring to stay and, and protect their loved ones or play dead with their loved ones rather than attempt to escape the building. Others used dead bodies to shield themselves from the flurry of bullets. At 9.55pm, the first emergency response units leave the station. All the emergency services are terrified, yet they put on their equipment and make their way into the depths of the panic. They risk their lives unsure if they are going to encounter more attacks whilst they save innocent civilians. 
Due to the rush of the phone calls they receive, they are unsure what they are actually going to see on the streets, but all put themselves directly into the line of danger. And yeah, because there were calls coming from every part of the city, explosions, shootings, people with knives, people panicking about their loved ones. Uh, you can't imagine what's going on. If you think your whole country or your whole city is under attack. And as well, you still will just have the general upkeep of police in the whole capital city. So yeah. you, still, you still have to attend all those as well so it's not just a case of they could put everyone onto this mm -hmm. 10.02 p.m the terrorists take hostages after two members of the police force entry into the Bataclan they manage to shoot one of the terrorists he then detonates his bomb as a direct consequence of the police shooting 11 hostages are taken by the two remaining terrorists witnesses said that when the terrorist detonated his bomb the other terrorists were in awe of their friend who had just taken his life the hostages are told they will not be killed of course, it was difficult for them to believe this, especially when the terrorists continued to shoot the bodies of those who had passed and those who were pretending to be dead. They are forced into a small hallway. They are told to stand up against the two windows in the hallway and to become human shields. The door is shut behind them. And that was it as well, because the police that were trying to shoot the perpetrators then realised, OK, they've got devices or, or yeah. bombs strapped to them. Can we even shoot them now? Yeah. At risk of you know claiming more lives. And with some of the people who are still alive... Um, one man shouted insults at them, then they just shot him. Someone um, pleaded with them for them, to, you know, them not not to continue. They shot her, um, and apparently, if someone's phone would go off, if it, if it was just ringing, and obviously that'd be family members checking on them, mm -hmm. shot. Horrific. So then the, the guilt. You think about you, you, and if you just then just zoom out and think of the family member who rang their partner. Yeah. And even if you, it wasn't from that, you're oh probably thinking goodness. that you was you. Yeah. Obviously, completely, obviously not their fault, by the way. It just, the ripple effects from this is just staggering. Yeah. And like one of the people said on one of the documentaries I watched, luckily he had his phone was just on vibrate. So, yeah. Which, yeah, it's, it's terrifying. And that's the thing. Like when you, when you like read about these terrorists that were raised and radicalized with hate in their hearts about what's going on in their own countries or happened to their own families, you can't not understand what they're doing because that's absolutely not what i'm saying but if they're coming to get revenge for example or to cause inflict the same amount of pain that mm. has been caused to their families surely the way that these guys were doing it which is literally they almost were making light of the situation or they were putting a lot of people under you know they were being br absolutely brutal weren't they in the way, the well, way maybe it's were. the dehumanizing people and that that's why they c could do this is by acting as if they were just doing the job yeah. yeah 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 that's true i mean that lines up with the rest of that year that calendar year all those different events these were trained soldiers that were calm composed and absolutely callous in their in their acts and it's yeah it's horrific all these different testimonies are horrific at 10 15 p.m three of the hostages are told to sit down in front of the door the others by the windows are told to be on the lookout for police on the streets they are warned if they do not follow orders they will be thrown out of the window and again, that's another. There's so much footage of people trying to escape from the upper floors and yeah. they're hanging out of windows, yeah, hanging out of balconies. A journalist of next door, so he's filming it on his phone. Yeah. Because so, as a journalist, you want to, um, you know, keep a track of this and you keep record of this. You know, just be able to show the, the terror of what was happening and you know, people hanging from the windows, which I thought originally they were going to hang to drop, but it was they were hiding. Yeah, hiding yeah. by hanging, which is it's a it's a, it's a long way down, and it's just and, you know the bodies beneath them, and, and it's absolutely horrific. Police on the streets do see the hostages. They shout to them and tell them to go home. This frightens and angers the hostages. At 10.18pm, more emergency services arrive at the scene. The terrorists inside the Bataclan decide that they want to make contact with the press. 
and when the press do not answer, they decide to call the police instead. At 10.30pm, to prevent further attacks, the police follow orders and close multiple metro stations within the area. Members of the SWAT team enter the Bataclan. Although some are relieved by their presence, others who are still lying down on the floor think this may be a trick. As a result, they wait until they are certain that this is the police that has come to rescue them. Reminds me of Anders Breivik when they thought Anders Breivik yeah. was there to save them, the people on the well, there were There were rumours, weren't there, that these terrorists were claiming that they were police as well yeah. and rescue officers and it's just, yeah. When the others begin to get up without being shot back down, the survivors feel a breath of safety. They are escorted off the premises. Those who have been injured are carried out on steel barriers that were previously on the pavement. At the time, there was a lack of stretchers and so emergency services used the barriers to carry people to safety. Whilst this is going on, the hostages are still upstairs with the two terrorists. Police make their way up the stairs and split into two teams so they can cover more of the area. At 11pm, the football match at the Stade de France comes to an end with a 2-0 win for France. Football fans begin to realise something is wrong when air ambulances and sirens can be heard in the distance. Many fans make their way onto the pitch. So yeah, when you look at kind of a map of how these the timeline of the attacks took place, there's a lot around kind of central and eastern Paris in the city centre, but the stadium is to the north quite by quite a distance, so they are getting kind of a backdrop of the, mm. the terror that's going on in, in, in the city. Uh, the fans in the stadium are encouraged to make their way onto the pitch, and the German team are not allowed to leave the stadium due to fears for their safety. So there's actually a lot of footage of the players in, you know, going back into the tunnel of the stadium and looking out, uh, waiting to be advised on what's going on. Uh, and the German team actually end up staying overnight in the stadium with the French team. Yeah, they think the French team they did it out of unity, didn't they? Rather yeah. than they, they weren't, they think they were told they had to. But yeah. yeah um, and at this point, I don't think any of them have any idea about the brutality that's gone on in the other parts of the city. No. 11.07pm. At the Bataclan, one of the hostages is made to scream through the door. He's told to warn the police that if they try and enter, the terrorists will detonate their bombs. The terrorists then ask to negotiate with the police. Those who are acting as human shields by the window shout at the services on the ground to get the terrorists walkie-talkies. The hostages are told to throw all their phones into the centre of the hallway. One of the hostages quickly turns his phone off and pretends that it has died. He's allowed to keep it. He is then made to shout through the door and give the police three phone numbers which will be used to negotiate with the SWAT team. The hostages are sent into a state of disbelief when the police officer on the other side of the door cannot understand them due to their thick southern accent. In addition to this, the bulletproof helmets that the team are wearing are almost soundproof. Which you can understand, yeah. but at the same time, maybe you have a little hole in the side of it? This is made particularly challenging for the police officer to understand, as well as the accent issues. Negotiation talks finally begin. Throughout the course of the next hour, multiple phone calls are made between negotiators and the terrorists. Police and heads of security make the executive decision to raid the hostage situation. Although there was extreme uncertainty about doing so due to the number of hostages in such a small space, it was ultimately decided that this was the best option. As a result, with the orders to do so, police raided the hallway. After the first blow, the terrorists tell the hostages to follow them. Only one of the hostages does so. Immediately, there is a flurry of bullets. The police are able to get inside the hallway and in doing so, pull the hostages out. The police are rough with the hostages, trying to get them out of the situation as quickly as possible. The hostage that has been taken by the two terrorists watches as one of them detonates a suicide belt. The terrorist's gun had run out of bullets. The hostage is hit with shrapnel and then falls to the floor and pretends to be dead. The one remaining terrorist has seen his companion detonate himself, and he decides that he must do the same. Before the terrorist can detonate his bomb, he is neutralised by the police. At 11.30pm, the football fans are now allowed to leave the Stade de France. After hearing reports of the events that had taken place within earshot, the fans act in defiance and begin to sing the French national anthem. At 11.50pm, 
American President Barack Obama says that this attack has been a quote, an attack on all of humanity and the universal values that we share. He added, we stand prepared and ready to provide whatever assistance that the government and the people of France need to respond. At one minute past midnight on the 14th of November 2015, France is declared in a state of emergency. As a result, all of the French borders are temporarily closed and the army was brought in to maintain order and peace in Paris. The last time a state of emergency was declared was during the 2005 riots. At 21 minutes past midnight, the hostages from the Bataclan are brought to safety. It is made public knowledge that all three of the terrorists have died. As the hostages are escorted off the premises, they are advised to look at the helmet in front of them rather than look at the chaos around them. Unfortunately, it caught the eyeline of some of the victims, with one victim describing seeing a hill of bodies. At 1am, police are still evacuating more civilians from the Bataclan when they find more people hiding. Civilians are asked to lift up their shirts to prove they are not part of a terrorist group. They are given medical aid and are taken by a bus to the local town hall. Once they reached the town hall, the victims were able to be surrounded by others who had just experienced the same thing as them. At the town hall, they were provided with tea and biscuits to provide a semblance of comfort. The town hall set up a 24-hour counselling service. 130 people lost their lives and more than 350 people were injured during the Paris terrorist attacks. Schools and universities within Paris were told to close. All sporting events were postponed and Disneyland Paris shut its doors for the day. 10.50 a.m. There is a televised speech from Francois Hollande. He calls the attack an act of war. He also said, This is a terrible ordeal which once again assails us. We know where it comes from, who these criminals are, who these terrorists are. In these difficult moments, we must, and I'm thinking of the many victims, their families and the injured, show compassion and solidarity. But we must also show unity and calm. Faced with terror, France must be strong. It must be great and the state authorities must be firm. We will be. We must also call on everyone to be responsible. He announces three days of national mourning. At 11.42am on the 14th of November, ISIS announced the attacks were they're doing. They said that this attack was the first of the storm. They said that the attacks were in retaliation for France's involvement in airstrikes in Syria and Iraq. In the early morning, Salah Abdul Salam flees to Belgium. He was stopped before crossing the border by police at least once. However, it is unclear whether the authorities knew of his true identity before conducting these checks. So, an Egyptian Islamic scholar, Ahmed Al-Taib, urges global unity against extremism. He said, we denounce this hateful incident. The time has come for the world to unite to confront this monster, ISIS. On the 15th of November 2015, the Black Sea that had been used in the attacks is found abandoned in the suburbs of Montreal. Inside the vehicle, there was a massive weaponry found. Not letting fear take over their actions, France decided to launch an attack on the ISIS capital, Al-Raqqa. On the 18th of November 2015, five days after the attack, a team of police, military and the GIGN, which is the National Gendarmerie Intervention Group, raided an apartment in Saint-Denis. In this attack, 5,000 rounds were fired. Bombs were used with the hopes of killing the suspected terrorists inside. In this attack, one of the masterminds, Abdulhamid Aboud, was killed. A suicide vest was used by Chakiba crew. Aboud's cousin was also killed. The team find plans for other terrorist attacks within the apartment. So yeah, they've gone to, they, they found the flat or where they're located and they shoot 5,000 rounds kind of into it just to show the kind of, they're not willing to just to take this, which oh. is a staggering amount of bullets. Um, also, and were, bombs as well. Yeah, and police were, were some police were harmed within the shootout as well. So that is the timeline for the Paris attacks. Uh, we're going to move over to the aftermath now. 
As identities became known, it was clear to establish a timeline of the attacks. Authorities know that the day before the attack, three cars carrying the terrorists travelled from Belgium to France. A passport was found next to one of the bodies of a suicide bomber, who was named Ahmed Al-Muhammad. It became public knowledge that he passed into Paris with other migrants via Greece. That's what I mentioned a bit earlier on. Um, Ismail Amar Mustafi was a French citizen. He had no known terrorist links, but was labelled as a radical Islamist. He was identified via fingerprints at the Bataclan Theatre. Abdil Amid Aboud's identity was found due to fingerprints left in weaponry within the Seattle vehicle. Shakib Akru's identity was found on one of the vehicles using the attack. Fawid Mohammed Agad's DNA was matched to his mother's over three weeks after the attacks took place. Salah Abdul Salam's fingerprints were found in the apartment that had been used to prepare and plan the attack. For a while, it was unclear what his exact involvement within the attack was. Now, we know that he rented the cars used in the attack under a false name. It is also thought that he drove three of the terrorists to the Stade de France before fleeing the scene. Salah Abdul Salam was arrested four months after the attacks in Brussels on the 18th of March 2016. He was the only surviving terrorist from the groups who coordinated the attacks. Although he said that he chose not to detonate his suicide vest, it was later found that his vest was in fact defective. As a result, the court found him guilty in what was known as the biggest court case in modern French history. The court trial began on the 8th of September 2021 and didn't end until the 29th of June 2022. Abdul Salam was served with a full life sentence. He will be eligible for parole after 30 years. 19 other men were put on trial for terrorism offences. This included five that are suspected to be dead and only one was found to be not guilty. Sadly, this was not the only terrorist attack to occur with this terrorist cell's involvement. On the 22nd of March 2016, three terrorists linked to Paris attacks blew themselves up in Brussels airport and in the subway train. This attack killed at least 31 people and injured around 260 others. In 2006, Eagles of Death Metal performed... Yeah, but wait a sec. Plus 10. <laughs> in 2016, Eagles of Death Metal performed another concert for those who had been affected by the Paris attacks. It was a sold-out concert. Sadness was not the standing point of the concert. At the start, 10 seconds of silence was held before the music started. The hope was the concert would allow those who had been personally affected the chance to reclaim their love of music and events. The concert was heavily secured and concert goers had to have two body searches before entering the concert hall. Some of those who did make it through the doors of the battle clan were overwhelmed with grief and had to leave. The band decided not to play their song Kiss the Devil, which was the song when the terrorists stormed into the battle clan. The Eagles of Death Metal actually covered um, Save a Prayer by Duran Duran um, and the money raised from that was, was given towards the victims and um, Duran Duran actually, they gave their publishing rights as well towards it as well, so, but wow. they gave their money to help raise money towards it. Um, so they were like looking to kind of you know help support the victims. As I said, the vice um, the vice clip of the the interview with um, Eagles of Death Metal is very moving. Um, though the singer would go on to later say some quite not so tasteful or thoughtful things. Um, he would go on to say that he believed it was an inside job to do with security guards, wow. based on absolutely nothing. Which later on he would go on to say. I humbly beg forgiveness from the people of France, the staff and security of the battle clan. My fans, friends, family and anyone else hurt or offended by the absurd accusations I made. Yeah, it's very, uh, he says it himself is baseless and he takes full responsibility for what he said. But um, the band, they they said that you know, they immediately want they want to come back and play. They want to be the first band to play in the battle clan when it reopens. They said um, people came that night and died to see rock and roll. They want to go there and live. Yeah, that's a very interesting um interview it also talks about the bassist who made its way into one of the back rooms thinking it would lead to an exit a lot of fans followed him but it was a room that was shut in so they basically stayed in there barricaded the door 
and they were just they were in that room with a lot of people looking after one another who'd been some people had been shot and they were armed with a champagne bottle like a full champagne bottle as their only weapon in that room terrific yeah I mean you think about it people it's the band mates were on stage who probably had the close had more of a clear exit mm. if they managed to go all separate ways in different ways just think about how chaotic would have been there with 1500 people yeah yeah it's yeah it's, it's a case like no other we've covered so far I think as well because it was so I hate saying well coordinated but it was so intricately planned mm. and they had those three separate teams the Stade de France the Bataclan and the restaurants in the streets and they all operated simultaneously it's just the whole it caused so much chaos which was their exact plan and thank goodness that those people were advised to stay in the stadium otherwise these numbers although they're already horrific could have been so 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 much more horrific yeah and following such a dark case Ben maybe I'll spread a little bit of bit of light yeah with a bit of Tommy's trivia <gasps> wow is this a new segment <laughs> I think it might be might have some legs alright Tommy's trivia. <laughs> That's terrific. So, um, as I said, after such a dark topic, um, I originally looked for why is Paris the city of love? Um, and it's quite boring. It just says it's beautifully aesthetic and, you know, it's romantic places to walk. But then it told me, it said, also, why is Paris called the city of light? Oh. Which I've never heard of. City of light. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, as I said, dark situation. Let's, let's get some light on the situation. So there's two reasons why it's called the city of light, then. So the first reason is is among the first European cities to use gas street lamps back in the 1860s. So making it literally a city of light. Very nice. But it's, considering it's a thing that I never knew what was called, I'm not really that interested in the fact either. But also, because Paris was essentially the hub of the Age of Enlightenment. Oh. So literally, light and people enlightening their minds. Yeah, and you've got, you got a gas lamp to do your studying by. Get smarter under. You push your kettle inside your house. Yeah. Yeah, still light as well, isn't it? You said you out there, Ben. <laughs> yeah. What's that football? Yeah, so... We can lose that bit, Dan, if you want, no. it's very boring. Tommy. No, no, I think... Is this direct competition to Ben's interesting facts? I did, or? didn't want to say anything. Mm. I've Tommy's trivia. Um, I just think... Um, he's very good at finding niche bits. Of yeah, I mean, I, I think I can up my game from that. Um, I feel like now it's definitely... If, if, if I'm being pinned as a kind of... I know, I know how yeah, people love the interesting facts. The pressure starts when you have a jingle. Yeah. And yeah. when people are shouting that jingle at you in the streets, which I'm still waiting to happen. Yeah. Uh, I feel like you're, you're, you're going to release your own merch for Ben's interesting facts. I'm quite excited at the, at the prospect of a competition between you two. Okay, who so. gets it? And you can judge it. What's the more interesting thing? Okay, yeah. Okay, so I mean, Ben probably so this wins. week, Dan? Ben clears it, yeah. yeah, yeah Flashbang. That's fine. Flashbang, what, what, what interesting facts. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, I'll, be, I'll come back with my Tommy trivia for next time. Great. Tommy's trivia! <laughs> That's terrific! And with a new series, we're still looking for applicants for within the cult, or if you guys have an interesting question, uh, but we've got a few applications we're going to run through right now, so uh, <laughs> let's play that bloody jingle. Of ICMAP. <laughs> okay, so we have a few uh, applications. Are you ready for Rona's uh, application, boys? Yes. I've skimmed it and I'm not sure. Ben's not happy, but I'm ecstatic. Ooh. Hi, guys. I'm Rona. I'm from Glasgow and I believe I should be permitted into the ICMAP cult. Hey, Rona. Hi, Rona. Because I'm Scottish. Hey, Rona. <laughs> 
What was that? That's just me saying it again, look, for voice. Right, okay. I'm also an Etsy seller and I could assist with merch e-commerce. Mm, Etsy. However, Ben is not allowed to have a say because he might mistake three for free, which could be catastrophic for sales. I mean, smart. It's smart. That is all. Please let me in. Brackets. I can increase my monthly subscription. <laughs> Thanks, Rona. Oh, damn. Uh, I mean, I like the the nails I was using Etsy. Uh, obviously, creative. I love I love the Scottish accent. Uh, yeah, I do for, like, yeah, for me, um, for me, it's a yes. But uh, I, I want to know what Ben has to say about that. Well, I mean, if you're already technically a member on ICMAP, uh, then I don't really have a choice. You're 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 in, Rona. Thank you. Uh, welcome, welcome so much. Uh, next one from Danny, not me. Danny, oh. Danny, is this Danny Squirrel? It is. Hello. Oh. Hi, Danny Squirrel. Hi. Um, hello. I'm a little bit behind on the podcasts. I've only really just discovered you over the last few weeks, and I've been binging them. Lovely. We love we love a binge. Love it. We love getting your binge out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can stay. I would like to put myself forward for the cult. I'm a knitter. Please check out my Instagram for knitting, which is at knitted by Danny. And Tom's a natter. <laughs> You're a nutter. Well, they're a squirrel. They're a nutter. <laughs> I usually knit for charities such as local hospitals, homeless shelters, etc. Love the podcast. Oh, Thank you. Lovely stuff. What, what's, the, what's the Instagram again? At Knitted by Danny. Knitted by Danny. Very cool. Uh, well, it's a yes from me, and keep up the great work for let, the hospitals and the yeah, homeless. Let, yeah. let me just check to see the standard of the knitting, boys, before we say, I know, doing a nice thing, but if they're horrible designs, <laughs> oh, maybe no. it should be a very passive-aggressive way of bullying people. Um, I'm looking brilliant knitting. There you go. Grade A knitting. Guys, give it a follow. Knitted by Danny. I like the choice of colours. Mm. There. Some lovely little... Uh, oh, some dinosaurs. Oh, I love dinosaurs. There you go. So, yeah, lovely stuff. There you go. So that's two yeses. Welcome, Danny and Rona. Um, and again, it, we've had a ton of people approach us on social media, via email. Fire over an email, call application. It can be video. It can be audio. Something nice and catchy. If you've already sent one, resend it because we're adding a load more. We've got 18 episodes, so there's a good chance we'll get you. That's true. Um, that's true. 17 more to the go more, now. The more intriguing, but keep if it is an audio one, keep it concise. About that minute. Yeah. It's probably, that's probably perfect. It's um, really good, yeah. Yeah, keeping it nice and concise is, is helpful. Um, don't worry about the video. Though. Well, you can do the video on now, but only we'll see it now. Yeah, that's but that's, that's not a problem. But um, yes, thank you so much, guys. Pre- we, I hope you guys are happy we're back. We're here for 18 weeks. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a big, long series. You know, we're moving into the unknown here, but we've got a lot of interesting cases, which we're sure you guys are going to love. Um, and don't forget to give us a rating if you listen to us on, on, on your um, audio platforms. It helps more than you'll ever know. If you have your social media, then we can be found everywhere on at Could Murder a Pod. We, we post all the time on uh, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. So you'll uh, you'll see what cases are coming up and you can get involved with us there. We're very engaged. Very engaged. Very, very engaged. So uh, please drop us a follow at Could Murder a Pod. And if you want more content and you can't wait for next week, then uh, head over to icmap.co.uk. 117 big old episodes over there. That is a lot. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot to get through. So yes, guys, we're happy to be back. We're pumped to be back. And let us know what you think of the episode as well. And until next time, like we always say, keep doing what you're doing. Oh, no. Go on. Oh, no, not this week. Um, Unless uh, it's testing flashbangs on yourself. Flash, not flesh. <laughs> On that note, some people do that, though, don't they? You're trying to get a new sponsor. Well, and some of they have asked. So, flesh bangs. Smeggy, smeggy flesh bangs. <laughs> See you next week, guys. All best to Pip. Bye bye. Hold up. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.